The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Before we get into the word itself, we're going to do something just a little bit different. I'm going to play a game with you of name that tune. I'm going to say the opening line of a song, and the way that this is going to work is that you are going to wait until I complete the line of the song, and then you're going to respond. I'm sorry, we're going to dismiss the kiddos first. We don't want you playing this game, kids. We want, we want you downstairs playing games down there. So the way that this is going to work is that I'm going to, please let me finish saying the line so that everybody can kind of answer at the same time. And when I motion, you tell me what this song is. Wise men say, when fools rush in, what is the name of this song? Can't help falling in love. I was nervous there for a second. Ooh. All right, you know it. What about this one? A long, long time ago, I can still remember... How that music used to make me smile. American Pie. American Pie. At first I was afraid. I was petrified. <laughs> I will survive. I will survive. A, a couple. I feel like more of you know that, but you don't want to admit it. <laughs> In the town where I was born lived a man who sailed to sea. Yellow submarine. Now that'll be in your head. This is an important thing. When you hear the first words of a song, you know the song. And now, for the remainder of the day, you're going to be working hard to get Yellow Submarine out of your mind. Let's pray. (laughs) Father God, we come before you recognizing that the word that we are approaching is so significant. The fact that you have communicated to us is astounding. That you would even speak from heaven to allow us to understand who you are or what you are like is absolutely amazing. But the fact that you sent your son to reveal exactly who you are is far greater still. So Father, today as we look at the heart of the gospel, as we see the death of your son on the cross, God, I pray that we would come to this appropriately that we would come to this expecting something from you, that we would come to this desirous to learn and desirous to see more of who you are. And God, I pray that today as we see these words, that there would be much more going on than mere intellectual stimulation or knowledge that can puff up. But God, I pray that you would, through this, give us an understanding of your word that we've never had before, but also a desire to carry it out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We're going to begin today in verse 33. If you look at a calendar, Good Friday is 12 days away. But in our series here in the book of Mark, we've been at Good Friday for several weeks already. Last week, we saw the first three hours of Jesus on the cross. And without any distraction or without any more extended introduction here... We're going to look now to the last three hours of Jesus on the cross. Please follow along, Mark 15, verse 33. 
At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. It is truly impossible for me to stress the immensity of these words. If the whole Bible is like a wheel, then every single verse and theme and declaration is like a spoke that is leading to this central event. So in order to linger here and to give these words their appropriate weight, we're going to, give, uh, we're going to break them up into three sections and we're going to look at them piece by piece. First, let's consider the signs. Secondly, we'll consider the sayings. And thirdly, we will consider the confession that Jesus is the Son of God. Signs, sayings, Son of God. We begin with the signs. Although there are other signs that can be found throughout the other gospel accounts, Mark offers us two. And by signs, I'm speaking about supernatural events that were taking place near the cross because of what Jesus was accomplishing. The first of these signs can be seen in verse 33. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's from noon until three in the afternoon. This is very clearly a supernatural darkness that is covering the land. Now, I'm not a meteorologist or an astrophysicist, but I will trust those people who are, who have determined that it is impossible that this was a, an eclipse of some kind. Nor did the gospel writers ever explain this event in such a way that it's even possible to reconcile it to an eclipse. They don't last for three hours like this one did. And the wording indicates that darkness came on suddenly. It was instantaneous. It went from midday, noon, the hottest moment of the day, to the sun being blocked from the sky. It was not just speaking here about being cloudy. There are words for that in Greek. They don't use that. It's not here speaking about a dust storm. There are words in Greek for that. They don't use that. None of the gospel authors employ that kind of language. So here instead, they simply announce darkness covered the whole land. And they don't even attempt to explain how. But why did this darkness cover the land? Because God has been using the physical drama of light and darkness to represent supernatural realities since the very beginning. This has always been a picture of his love in contrast to the sin and darkness that is found elsewhere. God has been using light and darkness to represent the gospel ever since the very beginning. On the first day of creation, the very first proclamation that we hear for coming forth from the mouth of God is this. Let there be light. That's the first day of creation. That's the first words in the Bible. 
that we see coming from the mouth of God. Let there be light. And God saw that the light was good. This darkness that we see here on the mountain and surrounding area, perhaps all of Judea was encased in this darkness. It was foretold by the prophet Amos in Amos 8, 9. It says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. But perhaps the greatest parallel to this event takes place when the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. God sent Moses to go and deliver the people. And when Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he refused and said, I will not let the people go, then God sent ten plagues that were meant to torment the Egyptians. First, he turned water into blood. Then God sent frogs and gnats and flies. And then he caused pestilence to strike the livestock. And he afflicted the people with these boils that came all over their bodies. And then God sent hail from the sky. And then an army of locusts. But for now, we're going to focus on the final two plagues. The ninth plague was a plague of supernatural darkness that covered the entire Land. Listen to the words of Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. It says it this way. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Darkness to be felt. That's intense. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. In this penultimate plague, God sent darkness to cover the land of the Egyptians for three days. But on the cross, God sent that same plague to cover Israel for three hours. Now, I think this plague of darkness was designed by God to point to the fact that the tenth plague was on its way to being fulfilled. You see, the tenth plague in the book of Exodus happened like this. God told the people of Israel, take a pure spotless, perfect lamb, and slaughter it. Then they were to take his blood and to paint it over the doorpost and mantle of their house so that the Spirit of God would pass over them and they would be spared. But for those who did not have the blood covering, the Spirit of God would enter that home and would take the life of the firstborn son. So during these three hours of Jesus on the cross, these three hours from noon to three in the afternoon, there would have been a line of thousands of lambs that were being paraded to the temple. This is like a mile away from where Jesus is at most. He can probably hear from the cross the sound of those sheep being marched up to the temple where priests are going to cut the neck of this sheep and let it bleed out and they are going to sacrifice this animal to continue on the practice of celebration of this Passover event. So here what we see taking place is that these lambs are going into the temple yet they are not taking away anyone's sin. Yet the perfect, the holy Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was being crucified on the hill just outside the city walls. God promised the Israelites that there was a way for them to have their firstborn son spared through the blood of a substitute. That's what's happening at the Passover. But for Jesus, there was no substitute. Romans chapter 8 verse 32 describes God the Father this way. It says, 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This Jesus, who was born in the middle of the night under supernatural light, This Jesus who declared himself to be the light of the world, this Jesus who was the very embodiment of glory, was now being crucified in darkness. Now, if you've never heard the gospel before, if you had never read the book of Mark before, if you've never encountered the gospel before, if you'd never known this story and never experienced the resurrection, you had no knowledge of it in any way, then it would appear to you that God's plan is failing. You might reach this point in the book of Mark and you might become very frustrated wondering if Satan and the forces of evil are winning. Darkness seems to be prevailing over the land, but it was by this sacrifice that we have been brought near. Consider the way that Paul explains this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. It says, This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This great darkness that is taking place on the cross is resulting for us in genuine light. Now, I agree with the scholars and theologians who say that it was during this time of this darkness that God was fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53 by laying on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And by doing so, God has given us eternal life. So let's jump now down to the second sign, which is found in verses 37 and 38. It says this, And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. One of the worst things in the world is separation. Separation is traumatizing. If you were separated from someone that you love. I occasionally think back to this story that I read. It was more than 10 years ago. I was in high school, actually, so it was longer than that. I remember this story that I read. It was about a family living in China under China's one-child policy. And they had a little boy that was born into their family, and they loved this little boy, and they rejoiced and celebrated in this little boy. But then a few years later, they illegally got pregnant again, and they carried the child to term. And it turns out they gave birth to a daughter, and they hid her existence from the world for a time. But when the daughter was still very young, I think still a toddler, Someone found out and informed government, the government officials about this child, and the local police force showed up at the family's house, and the husband was arrested and taken away, and the mother was given an impossible choice. She was told, you must select which one of your children you're going to keep and which one we are going to take to become the property of the Chinese government. So she chose, after a period of deep mourning, that she was going to keep her little boy And the daughter was carried away. And I don't know any more of the story, but I assume she never saw her daughter again. Separation is terrible. I still remember that story often. And now as I have my own children, that resonates differently, I think, with me than it did then. But even then, I felt such pain for that family. Thinking about what that must have been like to have to make a choice of which of these children is going to remain in my home. 
That's also why, though, on a converse perspective, why we get emotional when we see videos about things like soldiers coming home from war and greeting their children. There was a separation, there was a division, there was a barrier there. They could not be together, but now the father has come home to his children and he surprises them at the door and they're greeting one another with kisses and with hugs and with celebration and with laughter. And it's, you have to be heartless not to feel that because separation is awful. But the Bible is filled with the idea that separation exists between us and God from the very beginning because Adam and Eve were perfectly perfect in their relationship with God until they sinned. And from that point forward, there was a division that took place. There was a barrier in place between God and man. Isaiah chapter 59 verse two puts it this way. It says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not even hear you. That's why when God met with Moses on the mountain, he told Moses to make this command to the people. God brings Moses up and he tells him, say this first to the people. Exodus nineteen twelve. You shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up onto the mountain or do not even touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. There is a barrier. Make no mistake, Moses. They are not allowed to come here. There was a separation from the presence of God and only one person, this Moses, was allowed to enter into that place and only under very specific, particular circumstances. Then when God taught the people of Israel to make a tabernacle, he did so in order to have a place where the people could go be near to the presence of God, but there was still a dividing wall of separation. And then when God told Solomon to build the temple, there was a room to be built in the very middle. It is to be a 30 foot by 30 foot by 30 foot cube that they are going to call the Holy of Holies. And there is only one person allowed to enter one time a year, the high priest on the day of atonement. And that high priest was commanded to go into the presence of God and make atonement on behalf of the people. And he would go in and he would perform a blood sacrifice and he would offer up incense to God at the mercy seat. There was always a barrier. There was always separation. And this barrier was depicted in the Holy of Holies by a wall that was made with a curtain. It was made with a curtain that was woven from flax and it was roughly 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. And depending on the the writings that you read, it was between two and four inches thick. I can't even tear a pair of jeans. And this curtain is what divides from the Holy of Holies because it is to remind anyone who would draw near, you are not welcome. You cannot enter into this space. But on the cross, when Jesus breathed his last, that barrier between God and man was immediately torn in two. The symbolism here is absolutely beautiful. From the top to the bottom, indicating that it was absolutely and positively a divine act of God. It was torn so that we could see As a declaration from God, there is now a way for anyone to access God's presence. That we can access the Father because of the death of the Son. 
Now, the temple on earth was always just a picture. It was an image of what was true in heaven. It was just a picture of the dwelling place of God. It was always a limited physical way for the people to get just a sense of heavenly realities. So Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that on the cross, Jesus was acting as our high priest. And he was entering into the true heavenly holy of holies. And he was offering a sacrifice on our behalf. Listen to the way he explains it in verses 11 and 12. There's much more here. I encourage you to study on your own. We're just going to take a small snippet from the middle, verses 11 and 12. It says this, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. This is the true heavenly holy of holies, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. He's not taking in some kind of a physical, earthly animal sacrifice, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. And in the very next chapter, we learn that Jesus has given us access, us, us, access to these same heavenly holy places. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 22 says it this way. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. If you were a Jewish person reading this, that would stun you. If you had lived under the Old Testament system of this temple that no one was allowed to even get close to. You would read that and be stunned. It says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us. How? Verse 20, through the curtain. So, of course, they know what this curtain is, right? It's this this curtain, this veil that blocks out the holy of holies. No, not through that curtain. We don't enter in through that curtain, it says, but through the curtain that is through his flesh by his death we have been made able to access the heavenly holy of holies because he was broken on our behalf and since we have a great high priest over the house of god verse 21 let us then draw near with a true heart a full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water we can go in as though we are completely absolutely pure We can go in without fear of judgment, without fear of death, without fear of God destroying us as we would normally deserve because we have access granted by Jesus and his death on the cross. Just like that curtain was torn in two, so was the barrier that kept us from enjoying the presence of God. It was completely removed so that we can now draw near at any time that we want through faith. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment and make sure that I clarify something. I am not saying that we can now go to a temple or building where we can worship God. The church building, this building that we cleaned up yesterday, thank you for doing that, by the way. It was very kind of you. You were not cleaning a temple. This is not a temple to God. Thank you to everyone who served in that way, but this is no temple. And all of those churches that call themselves a temple or tabernacle, it's in the name of them. Even those that are theologically sound places like Charles Spurgeon's church, they are not temples. They are not tabernacles in the biblical sense. The good news of the cross is that 
you are now the dwelling place of God. That it is now in us that he lives. If you are in Christ, you are the temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? That's a radical statement. You don't have to go anywhere to worship God. You worship him everywhere that you are. You don't have to pray to him in any specific location. You don't even have to get out of bed in the morning before you can call out to God and he will hear you because he dwells in you. Colossians 1.27 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Don't overlook that. I feel like that's one of those verses that I read too fast. Here, Paul refers to the entirety of the mystery of salvation by speaking of it in this way. The mystery of the gospel is Christ in you. That is it, that he is in us. He is dwelling in us. This is the extent of the hope of glory. There is no greater hope to have, but that he would dwell in us. And if Christ is in you, then you now have absolute, complete, full access to the Father, just like he does. Just as the Father has always loved the Son, intimately and perfectly, so we now experience that same love because we are in Christ, and Christ is in God. So our access to the Father is absolute. The cross has opened the door for perfect union with God because we have perfect union with Christ. And so in this, we see the Trinitarian nature. The Spirit of God dwells within us. We dwell within Christ, and Christ brings us to dwell within God. This is why we can go boldly before the throne of grace. This is why we can be victorious in our battle against sin. This is why we can love other people freely. This is why we can really enjoy true fellowship with the brethren. This is why we can experience unspeakable joy and peace that surpasses understanding because Christ in us. Now, we could never go into the presence of God. We could never, we were never allowed. It was impossible. We could never go into the presence of God in our sinful state. So what happened? Instead, God, the Son, came to us and he got us and he brought us into himself and he carried us to the Father. That he brought us through the veil himself so that we might be able to encounter the holiness, the purity, the perfection of God in fullness. These two signs that occurred reveal a lot of rich spiritual truths. Now, I guarantee that nobody in Israel that day went to bed and was thinking to themselves, well, that was just a normal day. Every single person in Israel at this time must have known something strange is taking place. I don't know exactly what these things mean, but it's normally bright outside at noon, and all of a sudden the entire land became dark. I have lived my entire life in this place and there has always been a dividing wall, a barrier into the Holy of Holies and for some reason it was torn from top to bottom in two pieces. Now they didn't understand what those things mean but now that we do by the grace of God, we can rejoice that God has done a great work for us. Now let's move on to the second point which is the sayings from the cross. 
Now, although there are seven sayings from the cross that are mentioned in the the four gospel accounts, there are only two that are mentioned here in Mark and only one that is actually quoted. Both of these come at the very end of the three hours of long darkness. And at the ninth hour, it says in verse 34, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Now, as people who don't speak Aramaic, this might seem like a very odd mix-up to make. However, when you put together the fact that Jesus had been consistently beaten for the last 12 hours, that his face had been pummeled over and over and over, you must understand that his lips must have been brutalized. They were probably broken, and he was hanging out in the hot sun without a drink for at least the last six hours, probably the last 12. His mouth must have been greatly parched, and all of those cuts and lacerations from his teeth on the inside of his mouth would have made his words difficult to form. So perhaps when Jesus is saying this, He is saying it through the great pain of trying to move his mouth around that unfamiliar feeling of cuts and lacerations. But also we must understand that he says the word Eloi, which means my God, which sounds very similar to the Aramaic Eli, which is used to refer to Elijah. People were probably very aware of the idea of people calling on Elijah because it's the Passover, And at the Passover, you would call for Elijah and you would leave a seat for him to come and enter in. Because there is a promise in the Old Testament that another Elijah is coming. Of course, we know from the New Testament that was John the Baptist. And we know that he was pointing the way to this person, Jesus. So certainly, Jesus is not calling Elijah. He's not speaking of Elijah. But it makes sense that they would confuse this saying of Jesus. So we see the response of these onlookers. One of them has this idea that he will go fill a sponge with sour wine. He'll put it on a reed and he's going to give it to Jesus to drink. It's interesting here because the word for reed is kind of a unique one. And it's the same word that was used for the reed that they beat Jesus with. So it's very possible that this same reed that was used to constantly batter his face is the one that they are now using to try to give him this sour wine. What's being called sour wine here though in this passage really has nothing to do with what we would call wine today. It was a watered-down kind of vinegar that was legal for soldiers to drink while they were on duty. It was against the law for them to drink real wine because, of course, you don't want somebody who's on guard taking long hours, long shifts to be drinking a lot of wine. So instead, they would allow them to have what's known as sour wine. Think of it as something similar for us like apple cider vinegar. It's not delicious, it's terrible, but it would keep them invigorated and it would keep them awake. But it's really difficult to see whether this event was intended to be a kindness by the person giving this to Jesus, or if it was intended to be an insult. When you consider that Jesus' throat must have been very parched, and remember that his lips and gums were torn to pieces, it's very possible that this was meant to be a painful insult. Oh, you're thirsty? Here, take this, because that would burn every one of those cuts, and it would burn all the way down his parched throat. You can read the intent of the people here in one of two ways. They say, 
wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Now, perhaps this was somebody being serious. This was an onlooker really curious. Maybe he really is going to have Elijah come down. Perhaps they really believe this could happen. Surely some of these people knew someone or perhaps had even been at the feeding of the 5,000. Absolutely, the people who were standing there knew someone who had experienced the miraculous power of Jesus, where they had seen Jesus do a great healing or an exorcism. They must have known someone who claimed to be physically restored by the healing power of the Christ. So perhaps now they're standing at the foot of the cross and wondering to themselves, wait a minute, is this actually going to happen? Will Elijah actually come and assist him? So perhaps they're standing there legitimately hoping that they're about to see something incredible. However, I think that it's much more likely that this was a continued form of mockery. I tend to agree with the scholars who believe Jesus is being ridiculed by this event. These people thought that Jesus was calling out for help from a long dead prophet. And they were certain this prophet is not going to show up. So now they're using this as a way to taunt Jesus. So they stand in front of him and they they probably even dramatize this event as they're in the hearing of Christ saying to one another, Hey, maybe Elijah will come. Maybe if we just wait long enough, he'll show up. Maybe, maybe... This guy really is who he says he is. It seems to me that this is much more intended as a form of torment to Jesus. But Jesus had never called Elijah. Jesus had never asked anything from him. Oh no, this cry was to a much higher authority than Elijah, more than he ever had been. In a loud voice, Jesus had cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now in this we see the immensity of the weight of the cross. Far more than the physical pain that was racking his body, Jesus was experiencing genuine anguish that he bore as he bore the weight of sin and the penalty for sin. But without compromising the integrity of the Trinity, Jesus was experiencing the wrath of God on himself for us. But this question that Jesus called out from the cross is also intended to bring our attention to the clearest psalm that speaks of the crucifixion. Earlier, we played a a game of uh, Name That Tune. And just by giving you the opening line of a song, you knew what it was, but I guarantee you also were thinking of what it sounded like. You were thinking of the other lyrics. You probably still have the chorus of Yellow Submarine stuck in your head, and it will be for another day or two. Try getting that out of your mind. Music is incredible. Music really is incredible. It is God's perfect gift for helping people like me with bad memories. You can memorize anything if you put it to music. That's why the Psalms are so potent in the Christian life. Because not only are they poetic, but they were a songbook for the nation of Israel written for God by God himself. How do you want us to sing to you, God? Here, I'll write you a book. Sing this so that we can worship him well. Now, the songs that I set before you earlier were all songs that are pretty much worthless. I mean, they're they're cultural touchstones for us. They're songs that I think everyone here would know and recognize. Even the youngest among us have certainly heard those tunes. These songs resonate with us, not because they mean something deep to us. What, What could Yellow Submarine mean? It's not because they have a deep intrinsic value to us. It's because they're cultural icons to us. 
But the cultural songbook of the Israelites was the book of Psalms. They didn't have a radio station. They sang these songs when they woke up in the mornings. They sang these songs when they would worship together in the synagogue. They would sing these songs when they would travel. They would sing these songs in the temple. They would sing these songs when they were sacrificing. They would sing these songs when they were eating. They would sing these songs when they were going to bed. This is their cultural songbook. And Psalm 22 was one of the psalms that was known to be of great messianic messianic significance so when jesus calls out the first lyrics to this song it was surely intended to bring the reminder of this whole song to mind not only does this psalm give great detail about the manner of jesus death i mean earlier john was reading it and you could just see the cross in those words it speaks of him dying it speaks of him being surrounded by the bulls of bashan like people have encircled him it speaks about their mocking and jesting it speaks about his hands and his feet being pierced it speaks about him being able to count his bones speaking of the flogging that he had experienced it even speaks about the soldiers gambling for his clothes it is filled with rich detail of a kind of execution that didn't even exist when psalm 22 was written But this psalm actually resolves in a very different way. It resolves by this individual being vindicated. Consider verses 27 through 31 again. It says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations." All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, shall bow all who go to the dust, even the ones who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. In other words, this cry of Jesus on the cross was not at all like the question that we might ask when we say, how could you do this to me, God? How could you let this happen to me? Why are you not listening to me? Why are you not helping me? I know what I'm dealing with and I know what I think I need to get out of it. Why won't you do those things? That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Rather, what he is speaking about is not a question of unawareness. How could you do this to me? He's not asking out of ignorance. How, why have you forsaken me? He is asking this because he is exactly aware. He is certainly aware of what is happening to him. He is purposely linking himself now to this figure in Psalm 22 who was beaten and bruised and humiliated. He is declaring, that is me. This passage that you have been singing probably this very day is about me. And that Messianic figure would ultimately be vindicated and glorified because what the Jews have not understood while they're singing this song to themselves and to each other is that the suffering individual at the beginning of the passage is the same as the Lord at the end of the passage. That the one who is experiencing great torment is the same one as the Lord who is glorified and raised and to be worshipped. So when Jesus quotes the first word of this psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's only reasonable to think that Jesus is also looking forward to when it says all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. It's only right to recognize and say that he's he's remembering that all the families of the nations shall worship before you. He is seeing the church for kingdoms 
And kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. It only makes sense that he is saying, now that I have sacrificed myself here, I know what is coming for me. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Lord. And he is recognizing, even with this quote, not just that he is suffering in agony, but also that he is the king of kings. The second saying that is implied here in these verses, it's not quoted, we see all the way down in verse 37. And it's very connected. It says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, although Mark does not tell us the content of this cry, he doesn't say what he yelled out. We know from the other gospel accounts that he declared in a loud voice, Tetelestai, which means, It is finished. He had declared once and for all that he had accomplished everything that he had come to do. This was a notice to everyone who would ever believe in his name that the debt for your sin is paid in full. It is finished. It is complete. In fact, the way that we, the, the, the best records we have of this wor- word to Telestai in the ancient world is on receipts or somebody would write over it, paid in full, to Telestai. You don't owe anything else. It's all completed. It's all done. The interaction that we had that was you owing me is now gone. Now we have nothing between us. Now it is finished. And as soon as he had made this proclamation of achievement, Mark simply says, he breathed his last. As I read those words about Jesus, about the Savior, it is stunning to me because I think we read too quickly that Jesus died. Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, laid down his life at the cross. This Jesus breathed his last. So allow me to to finish this sermon out by shifting slightly forward as we consider point number three, the Son of God. In verse 39... We are introduced to a new character in the story of the crucifixion. Mark simply describes him as the centurion. Verse 39 says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now as a centurion, this man was in charge of a hundred other soldiers. He was almost certainly the highest ranking official that Jesus encountered after leaving Pilate. This means that the centurion had overseen every bit of brutality that Jesus had experienced. He was the boss of all the other soldiers who had been beating and mocking Jesus. Now, it's never stated, and I don't think we need to even assume that this man ever joined in the beatings or that he was the one gambling for the clothes. I think some, you know, try to to dramatize that a bit. We don't know if that's the case, but at the very least, he did allow it and he did encourage it. And that's why his response to Jesus' death is so spectacular. This soldier was not a rookie. This wasn't his first crucifixion. It wasn't his first day on the job. He had no doubt overseen many crucifixions. Yet Mark informs us that as Jesus died, this hardened soldier stood facing Jesus. The picture here is beautiful. At the foot of the cross, looking up, at Jesus, facing him, and he saw something that stunned him. Notice that when Mark says it, he does not say, and when the centurion saw that Jesus breathed his last, 
No, he writes, And when the centurion who was facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. What is Mark speaking about? What way is it that impacted this soldier so much? I think there's probably multiple things that are all coalescing at the same thing to create a testimony for this soldier. First, Jesus did not ever say anything against his accusers. It was common for criminals who were being killed to scream out vile insults and harsh verbal abuse against anyone who would come by. Jesus never spoke a single harsh word against anyone from the cross. Secondly, I'm certain that many of the men who were dying on crosses wept bitterly because they were terrified of death. They would have probably pled for just a short amount of time left on this earth because they had no desire to see what is beyond the veil when you close your eyes for the last time. But Jesus gave himself over to the Father, willingly committed himself in full assurance of what was to come. Thirdly, this soldier has heard the word that Jesus said. He heard all of the things that Jesus has said from the cross, the ones that are represented in Mark and the ones that are not. And with each of the cries from the cross, he, re- he was speaking something life-giving. He was speaking something of love to others. And finally, consider this. It must have been an awful job to be this guy, this centurion. It must be a horrible job to crucify people. I think if your job gets difficult and you, you look around and you think, I just have bad days here. I don't know if I can take it. Consider what this guy goes through. His job is to take the nastiest, worst criminals of society and to beat them and to flog them and then to nail them or tie them to a couple pieces of wood and then sit there for hours and sometimes days as they screamed in agony until they died. That's terrible. This guy probably hated this part of his job in some ways. Perhaps he enjoyed the brutality of it sometimes. We don't know. But what I do know is this. There are aspects of this that would have been horrific. People don't kill people without experiencing emotional trauma. People experience nightmares from these kinds of events. And not only that, the people that he was crucifying certainly usually fought back. People don't enjoy getting their hands nailed to a cross. Don't you think he probably had bruises or scars where people had tried to escape or fight against him as he is doing these things, as they scratch and clawed and bite and kick to keep what is going on from happening? He was probably used to having prisoners trying to avoid the cross. But Jesus was different. There was nothing about his death that the soldier recognized. It was unique to the point that this pagan who knew nothing of the true God, who knew nothing of the messianic prophecies, who knew nothing of what Jesus had been teaching, he saw Jesus' death and he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, if you are a Christian, it's because you have seen and believed the very same thing that this man has stated. You have been given the grace to see that the humble man who died on the cross was truly the Son of God. And you now know that Jesus did not remain on that cross. You have information that that soldier did not. He, three days later, rose from the tomb, and he was vindicated, just like Psalm 22 foretold. He was raised from the dead, and he is alive to be our king now and forever. He is our friend. He is our older brother. He is our chief shepherd because he has come down from the cross in death and risen again in life. And now we have him as our king. But perhaps you're here and you don't know Jesus in this way. Perhaps you're here 
and you've never encountered or experienced the truth of who Jesus is as Messiah and Lord, I just want to say to you lovingly and invitingly to look upon this man on the cross. This soldier didn't go into his day thinking, I'm going to see the Son of God. Perhaps you didn't either. But if you've come here and you've heard the news of who Jesus is, if you've come here and seen what Jesus has done on the cross, I encourage you to look and live. See Jesus for who he is, the King of kings who sacrificed himself for sinners like you and me. And if you believe that he died for your sins, if you believe that he paid the way for you to have a right relationship with God, if you believe that he tore the veil in two so that we might be able to enter into God's fullness forever, if you believe that, then you will be saved. You will never again experience separation from God. If you want to know more about that, please talk to me before you leave, because I want you to know this Jesus, so that you might stand before the cross just like the centurion and say, surely this man was the Son of God, but also that he continues to be and will always remain the Son of God. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we close our service this morning, that our hearts would continue to be open to this truth. God, there's so many applications that I could have put in this sermon, because literally every application of every sermon I have ever preached or will ever preach is found because of the weight and gravity of this passage. So God, I pray that as we leave, we will remember you as we have done, as we took the Lord's Supper, and that it would be a springboard into living for you, that we would hate our sin and we would fight against it with the power of the Holy Spirit, and that we would live lives of holiness rooted and founded in the fact that you have done everything to make us your child. So God, I pray for those of us who who recognize and desperately need your help, that you would help us. But God, I also pray for those who don't know that they need your help. Help them to see that they are also desperate. And Lord, I pray that if they don't know you in a saving way, you would save them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.